someone the NSA once listed as the most dangerous hacker in America, sure don't look like much. He travels the world and scans the web to keep you up to date on the latest threats to the internet and to your cybersecurity. He brings you the latest on the fight against cyber terrorism, keeping you safe with the best cybersecurity information on the radio. It's Cybersecurity Today with John Bambanek. Good morning and welcome to Cybersecurity Today Radio. I am your host, John Bamanek, coming at you from AM820 News covering Tampa Bay and the West Coast and AM1060 News covering Orlando and the Space Coast. Uh, you can find us online, cybersecuritytodayradio.com, on Facebook at facebook.com slash cybersecradio, and on Twitter at cybersecradio, and my personal Twitter account at Bambanek. We do take questions for our social media segment, so anything you want to know about cybersecurity and what you know to what you need to know to protect yourself and your family from hackers and threats that are out there and online. Very busy week when it comes to cybersecurity. <clears throat> Late last week, uh, actually just before we aired, uh, there is news out of France, uh, the French presidential election, where the now incoming French president, his emails and those of his campaign staff were leaked online. There's been a lot of discussion the last few days about whether Russia was behind it. It certainly didn't have any impact in the outcome. The uh, margins that had to be overcome by uh, Marine Le Pen, who was a challenger, were simply too big to, to be manipulated. But certainly there were some questions about who hacked uh, the political party's email, who leaked this stuff online. So been a lot of discussion about that, and, and we'll dive into that here now. So uh, it was, there's an interesting aspect about the French presidential elections is they actually have an enforced media blackout with the press, and the candidates aren't really allowed to speak or hold events two days prior uh, to an election. So hours before that deadline took effect, the, uh, these emails were leaked online. And there were a lot of back and forth and aspects about this. Uh, the uh, Macron campaign, Emmanuel Macron, who's the incoming French president, uh, his IT guy said, well, we saw these phishing attacks. We simply just gave them uh, fake emails and fake passwords uh, and gave them a bunch of fake information. And it certainly seemed that in some of these dumps, uh, there was some obvious uh, fake information. So a very interesting tactic that I think we should think about, right, is using uh, deception against uh, people who would try to manipulate our elections if you're a political party. Uh, and certainly I think more will be discussed on that uh, as time goes on. But, uh, you know, certainly in this past week, a lot of discussion goes back to, you know, were the same individuals, you know, the alleged Russian intelligence agents uh, or agents of the Russian government, were they who... Uh, were the ones who tried to influence our election the same one uh, in France. There's certainly some indications that that was true. Uh, nothing I would say is definitive. Uh, I know we talked a few weeks ago on this show, right, that it, it certainly appeared that there might be uh, some Russian individuals who are trying to engage in phishing attacks against the campaign. Uh, we don't really have enough data to conclude uh, anything definitively because we don't really know which attacks succeeded uh, against the French presidential uh, candidate's party uh, to say, okay, this was the attack that did it. Here's where the emails went. And that and follow the path. We, we still need to get more information there. But there is a lot of indications out there that suggest it's possible. If you look in the metadata of the files, there's a couple of Russian names in there. Now, all of this could be mimicked. All of it could be you know put in there as part of a joke or, or whatever. So you can't take 
a great deal of confidence in it. You certainly take note that the data is there, uh, but we need a lot more to make any conclusions. So you probably have seen articles over the past few days, and you'll see them in the, in the next few weeks, claiming Russia was involved, part of their campaign stuff. Certainly Russia is interested in doing these kind of things, but time will tell if we can really say that definitively because investigations, uh, as you know, uh, certainly take some time. So usually the first people speaking to the press probably don't know what they're talking about. But uh, certainly there were some indications of, of foul play, but didn't have any real impact in the end. So I think there's some things to take away from this to keep in mind, because we're still talking about election security here in the United States. I know I have a lot of conversations about it, uh, and I know I'm actually going to have some project work uh, involved in the next couple of years about this, of people who are concerned about foreign influence. It kind of goes back to uh, one of the main things is, is stealing email, leaking its stuff online. Uh, and I, I'm going to say it again multiple times in the show. You'll hear it. I'm sure you'll get sick of me saying it. Email is an insecure and an insecure platform, right? It's, it's easy to forge messages. It's easy to snoop on them. It's easy to do a lot of things. And there's no good way to really prevent it. So certainly uh, encouraging people not to transact important business online because national political parties are an intelligence target. This is where the first draft of government policies are written, and that is very useful information to any foreign government who wants to engage in espionage. So they're, they're targets, so you can't really be doing the important business on an insecure platform. So going to the other things like, you know, we'll, we'll do it in a private network. We'll use Signal or an encrypted text, text an encrypted text messaging solution, you know, Something along those lines, or having conversations in conference rooms. So, like I said, make sure you're using more secure platforms for those important conversations. That's a takeaway for, for other people. But we'll definitely track this story. I'm sure we're going to come back to it again in the coming weeks. So very interesting news out of France with the French presidential election. Uh, you're listening to Cybersecurity Today Radio with John Bamadak. Segwaying again, the big news here this week, uh, actually I spent the week in Washington, D.C., um, ironically enough, and the big news here was President Trump's firing of James Comey, the director of the FBI, again relative to the cybersecurity investigation last year. So the, the stated reasons were how he handled the Clinton email controversy, and certainly there's a lot of undertones of the ongoing uh, investigations into what uh, Russia allegedly did during uh, the U.S. presidential election. So all kind of going back to this same cybersecurity story of our elections that never uh, we can't seem to stop talking about. So certainly the president has the legal authority to, to fire the director of the FBI. That's established, but it doesn't necessarily mean everything was appropriate. It certainly took a lot of people by surprise. I was in meetings all day and somebody made uh, you know, a comment of like, you know, holy cow, you know, what's, you know, I have no idea what's going on. I'm like, what happened? And see, wow, okay, the president just fired uh, the, the director of the FBI and as kind of the, I don't know, amusing or sad anecdote part of that, uh, Director Comey, well, now former Director Comey, was addressing the Los Angeles field office and there were TVs in the background that announced his firing. You know, he goes, oh, okay, that's a funny joke and keeps going on as staff figures out no actually he'd been fired and they kind of bring him into a side office and tell him so certainly um, you know probably not the most professional way to let somebody go 
there's a lot of strong feelings on both sides in terms of not only how the uh, invest various investigations uh, into election-related matters happened last year and are happening now, uh, but certainly about Director Comey himself. So time will tell exactly what impact this has. Most of the uh, most of the ongoing investigations are are handled by uh, higher level career people. So those investigations still continue. Um, certainly, new leadership can take things in a new direction, but I doubt you know a, a new director is going to sit there and say, "All right, all those investigations are dead," and 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 take any radical differences. But but certainly, it's big news here in Washington. Uh, it's uh, I don't want to say unprecedented because that's a that's an overblown word, but but certainly it was a, it was a big shocking move to a lot of people here. Uh, and time will tell how that affects a lot of things. Uh, director Comey uh, was a big ad. Advocate for encryption backdoors, a topic that we're going to come into in our social media segment of, uh, you know, do uh, should technology providers uh, allow law enforcement to have backdoors into encrypted communications with sufficient legal process, whatever that ever happens to mean. So here we are still talking about cybersecurity as a top tier issue. Uh, certainly a lot of things to look for, you know, look forward to. So stay tuned for more. Uh, coming up next, we're going to talk more about some of the news of the French presidential elections, the uh, firing of uh, the director, uh, what the NSA has to say uh, about all of this. So stay tuned. We're going to have Patrick O'Neill on from CyberScoop. You're listening to Cybersecurity Today Radio with John Bambanek. We'll be right back. This is Cybersecurity Today with John Bambanek. And now, focus on government. My idea of a perfect government is one guy who sits in a small room at a desk, and the only thing he's allowed to decide is who to nuke. Government is the problem. Cybersecurity. There's a new virus in the database. What's happening? It's replicating, eating up memory. Uh, what do I do? Type cookie, you idiot. And welcome back. You're listening to Cybersecurity Today Radio with John Bambanek. Uh, last segment, we talked a little bit about Russia, uh, the French elections, and uh potential Russian meddling. And certainly the big news this week is the director of the FBI uh, being kind of unceremoniously fired uh, by President Trump. So a lot of big news here uh, to talk about, uh, you know, a good deal of it relevant to cybersecurity. So brought back Patrick O'Neill here with CyberScoop, cyberscoop.com to help talk about some of the news going on this week. So welcome back to the show, Patrick. Thanks for having me. All right, so let's start with you know, kind of what everybody's talking about. I happen to be in Washington, D.C. this week, so I was at ground zero for some of the, the political fun that's happened of, of Director Comey and uh, his, uh, his firing uh, as head of the uh, FBI. Sure. So as everyone knows by now, Comey was fired as head of the FBI on Tuesday. And uh, I guess the question is, why did it happen? Um, and the reason given by the White House and by the DOJ was because they were unhappy with Comey's conduct during the Clinton email investigation. Mm -hmm. uh, that's an explanation that's gotten uh, 
at the risk of uh, at the risk of alienating some people, laughed at widely uh, by a lot of folks, given the fact that Trump had publicly applauded Comey's actions during the Clinton email investigation. Um, and so the spotlight has immediately turned, of course, to the investigation that Comey was overseeing, um, looking at the connections between Trump, uh, the Trump campaign and Trump associates and Russia. And, of course, Russian hacking of Democratic uh, politicians, including, obviously, Hillary Clinton's uh, campaign. Mm-hmm. Um, there's more questions than answers at this point in terms of why it happened, how it happened, and what happened next. But, obviously, it's going to have huge ramifications for um, where the U.S. government goes uh, from here and, of mm-hmm. course, how the U.S. deals with the cyber attacks that, in large part, define the 2016 presidential campaign. No, it's it was the most interesting case I've worked yet in my career because I'm involved in a DNC breach, some some matters involving President Trump, and they're still ongoing. Not that there's much more to investigate. We already kind of know where the facts are. It's just the fallout just keeps it keeps on going. We're still talking about it here. You know what? Almost eleven months after I finished the or we finished the technical part of the investigation anyway. So uh, that's right, and and the obvious. One of the obvious reasons that we're still talking about it is because uh, the hacking from those parties, um, the the Russians, the GRU, the FSB, continues. Um, it continues in Ukraine. It continues in Europe across some major elections. Obviously, the French presidential election um, had a major hack and leak the other day. So mm-hmm. that's going to continue keep the conversation alive in the U.S., um, among other reasons. Yeah, and let's let's segue talking about the French presidential elections, right? Their, their election was last Sunday. Uh, prior to that, just before the media blackout, uh, France imposes a two-day uh, media blackout prior to elections. And nine uh, gigabytes of emails were leaked from various officials for uh, Emmanuel Macron's uh, political campaign in March. So, uh, you know, it, it, we're a few days, uh, you know, almost a week into it. You know, what have we discovered about who was responsible for that? Right. You know, do we have solid proof of Russia involvement? Uh, you know, or is it really just uh, kind of 4chan Internet trolls? <laughs> right. The 4chan Internet troll uh, question comes from uh, Julian Assange tweeting on WikiLeaks that that could be where it's from. Um, no signs other than that tweet point to uh, 4chan involvement, really. Um, but it's funny that you say it's been a few days, right? So it's, it has been just a few days since that leak uh, came out on Friday. But there's been reports of Russian uh, mm-hmm. cyber operations against against the French presidential candidate, uh, Emmanuel Macron, since at least January and February. Um, And a couple of weeks ago, Trend Micro, another cybersecurity firm, came out Mm -hmm. and said that the Russians were targeting Macron, among other uh, European uh, politicians. Uh, The the underlying, the common denominator, rather, there being that these are politicians who can easily be seen as... um, bad for Moscow's uh, foreign policy, right, at least compared mm-hmm. to their rivals. Certainly, Marine Le Pen, who uh, came in second in the first presidential election, was much more openly friendly with Vladimir Putin um, and is much more antagonistic towards the European Union mm-hmm. uh, compared to Macron. Um, as far as who was responsible for the French hacking, um, I think right now the leading candidate is once again uh, Russia. Uh, the reason for that is that um, Mike Rogers, the head of the U.S. NSA and the head of Cybercom, said that NSA was giving a heads up to France uh, on Russia targeting Macron. They were watching it happen and they offered their assistance. And so, yeah, Russia's, Russia's meddling in, uh, in Western democracy essentially uh comes up again and it's kind of a big question about what what happens moving forward what happens there in terms of cyber and information warfare 
has the potential, just like it did last year, to define um, important elections. Well, I think some of the interesting thing that came out, right, and I kind of did some research on, uh, on the Trend Micro Report, right, and, and worked up some of, uh, of the backstory. Uh, I'm not sure we can fully prove Right, Russian involvement, but certainly there's a lot of indicators there. But one of the things that the campaign said they did is like, you know, we saw that these phishing attacks happen, and then we started giving them fake data, fake logins, fake emails, things of that sort, um, which I thought was the interesting, right? I mean, that's that's a novel and interesting way to uh, respond to it, particularly in the light. There was one email document uh, in the dump that people took light of, you know, an, el- you know, an older gentleman uh, in French Parliament <laughs> ordering drugs off the dark web with Bitcoin and having it shipped to the Parliament and then having a receipt in his official email. Um, it certainly, there, there was some obvious I guess I should hope obvious forgeries um, in there. So, I mean, what do you think the credibility is that of, of putting it out fake data to just uh, be able to kind of be self-discrediting when these leaks happen? So to, to the point you made first about uh, not being able to definitively prove that this was a Russian operation, I just want to say I completely agree. Um, and in operations like this, mm-hmm. oftentimes the only one, the only people who can know are uh, governments who have far more investigative powers, especially at this early on, right after everything has come to light. So I agree. um, We're still early days in figuring this stuff out. Um, So as far as what you're talking about in terms of essentially honeypotting, right, in the sense that Mm -hmm. um, the the French campaign says that what they did is they put together a bunch of fake accounts and fake data and started feeding it to uh, the attackers. And then what happened was that the... um, the the data that was dumped on Friday, the nine gigabytes, contained a lot of that fake data. Um, and then the other idea would be that it would have slowed down the attackers. The French campaign is a much faster moving beast than the U.S. campaign. Um, the Emmanuel Macron uh, declared 172 days out from the election that he was running. He wasn't the front runner. He was virtually unknown. By that time in the U.S. campaign, Hillary Clinton had been running already for over a year. The DNC had been hacked. The Clinton campaign had been hacked. The D.C. leaks had been set up. The point is, sophisticated operations take a long time to plan and execute, and the attackers had a lot less time to carry out the French campaign. Um, And therefore, you know, attrition might have been an effective strategy in this. We really yeah. don't know. It'll be an interesting story here. We'll follow for uh, the next few weeks here, uh, and certainly going into the elections in uh, the UK and Germany going forward. So great content here from Patrick O'Neill, CyberScoop at CyberScoop.com. But stay tuned. We're going to take some of your questions here after the break of what you want to know about cybersecurity and how to protect yourself and your family. You've been listening to Cybersecurity Radio Today with John Bambanek, and we'll be right back. Scan your computer, but don't scan the dial. Stay right here. John Bambadek will be right back. Got a question on cybersecurity? I got a question! Ask Bambanek. Really? You sure about that? And welcome back. You're listening to Cybersecurity Today Radio. I am your host, John Bamlack. Now going into our social media feature where you ask us questions, we answer them. What you want to know about cybersecurity, how to protect yourself, your family, and keep your information safe. To ask us questions, you can go to our website at cybersecuritytodayradio.com. 
uh, ask us on Twitter at CyberSecRadio. Um, find us on Facebook at Facebook.com slash CyberSecRadio, uh, where we'll take your questions and tell you what you want to know about cybersecurity. So let's get right into it. Uh, Sarah asked, what is the deal with the Google Docs phishing scam? This made a lot of news in the last week uh, and a little bit before. Um, it is probably, in recent memory, uh, an email scam that went to more people worldwide than I've seen in some time. Just a huge number of people got this. Uh, Google said only 0.1% of their user base uh, was affected by this, but bear in mind, Google has over a billion accounts, so you're talking about, you know, in the millions of people who are affected by this, not just received it, but affected on it. And what it was at its essence, right, it it made uh, looked like somebody was sharing a document with you. It, it had, uh, it says, you know, somebody in your contact list. If you looked very closely, the two line would have a bunch of H's and then at mailinator.com. So if you looked at that two line, uh, you would notice fairly quickly. That's why it's always very important for, uh, for attention to details. But uh, Google Docs, for those who use it, allows you to share documents, let people edit it. Uh, so it's good for collaboration uh, and a variety of things. I know a lot of my college students use it for their projects and, and midterms and assignments that they can do uh, with groups of people anyway. So this email says, hey, somebody you know shared a document with you. You click on it, you know, then it asks you uh, to log in and says, hey, this needs access to your Google account to read, write, and, and whatever uh, as a third-party application. The important thing uh, that I, I really don't think enough people are talking about with this is there's a lot of applications, you know, not just your cell phones, but the same principle applies for Android iPhones. But Google, Facebook, Twitter, a lot of these social media things allow third-party applications to have, in essence, it's not really a backdoor, it's front door, but authentication to your accounts, to read, to write, to, to do whatever it says. It will, it will tell you what permissions that it wants. Once you give those applications permissions to your account, there is no changing your password to get rid of it, right? You have to go into those settings and remove that account's access, and that's kind of voodoo black magic for most people. So in this case, right, a malicious individual created this third-party application, was able to read, write emails, and over a million some odd people fell victim to it. Now, Google removed the application, cleaned it up, so it's unclear what real impact it'll have. But this is really a good time to emphasize and make sure people understand, you know, we're installing applications on our phone all the time. Those want permissions, and it will tell you. We never, most people never look at it. But if you see an application, you're installing a game for your kids on your phone because, you know, you, you, you're in a doctor's office and just don't want them climbing their wall for five minutes. If you see an application that says, hey, I want to be able to access your microphone, right, there better be a reason for it. You know, maybe it's got a voice component. If it wants to access your call log, why in the world would a game want to access your call log? And the same is true for social media. And it's really a big privacy concern. Like many of you, I see Facebook posts all the time in my feed that says, oh, I filled out this survey and it said, you know, I'm like 83% of this movie star. But to get to those applications and fill out these 10, 20, you know, question quizzes, 
you're giving full and complete access to your Facebook profile most of the time and take a look at it the next time you look at it and see what kind of permissions it's asking for. So for these silly little quizzes everybody's posting for, you're basically giving all of your information in Facebook, who your contacts are, what your likes are, often your posts, what kind of things you may be interested in. And most of the time, these are for consumer data aggregators who collect tons of information about people to basically sell you things better. So for the convenience of you being able to post at your 83% like Miley Cyrus to your Facebook friends, you're giving all of your consumer information to this company. You're consenting to it, right? There's no maliciousness involved here so that they can sell you things better. Uh, I know I'll come to this point over and over again, but these consumer data aggregators, I mean, we talk a lot about intelligence agencies and spying and at what Edward Snowden had to say, but really these consumer data aggregators are really getting deep information about millions of American consumers. And it works because you give them consent because you want to fill out a Facebook quiz, you want to do whatever. So the takeaway is the Google fish, obviously malicious. Not all these Facebook quizzes are malicious, but it's these third-party applications. Pay attention to what they're asking for permission to do, because you could simply be just giving your information to them free of charge. Uh, you're listening to Cybersecurity Today Radio. I'm your host, John Bambanek. We'll go ahead and move on to our second question in our social media feature where we answer your questions about what you want to know about cybersecurity. Frank asked, there was an article in The Sun that discussed secret messages in television advertisements being used to order smartphones to spy on people. Is that actually happening? Is a technology like that actually possible? <clears throat> uh, the headline is a little bit sensationalistic but this kind of goes back to the same thing about privacy you can install applications on your phone that have access to the microphone that that listen in and listen for things uh, outside the normal human hearing band and you could do that in television you could do that in any number of things where uh, they will use that information to create a marketing profile against you uh, create a marketing profile on you so for instance you could download something to your phone that's going to listen to what music you want to hear or what music you're listening to to give you an idea of what uh, CDs or iTunes tracks that they want to sell you uh, Nielsen ratings work similar way though that's with consent but some of these applications right you give permissions and, and it can tell hey I'm listening to these uh, television programs I'm listening to these um, ads and it gives like I said this again consumer data aggregation uh, that I've talked about earlier so again the technology is possible I wouldn't say you, you know scrutinize every application in your phone but definitely take a look at what applications are there what permissions they want uh, for iPhone that's a little bit harder to do this but Android's certainly popular uh, to do that because of its flexibility uh, but pay attention to what applications are listening to your microphone, want to use your location data, want to uh, access other applications, call logs, so on and so forth. Because even if they're not malicious, that tracking is being used to bring a lot of data about you to kind of create that consumer profile. Um, and a lot of people are concerned about that. They just don't know how it's done. But really, when it comes down to it, you know, you're installing something on your phone. It says, hey, do you want to give it these permissions? Knowing most people are just going to click yes. My kid wants to play uh, Angry Birds or whatever. And then here you are. So definitely always look at the permissions of those third-party applications.
Last question. Chris asked, there was an article yesterday in The Blaze that discussed Senator Feinstein's accidental disclosure of the government's paying a hacker close to a million dollars to hack in the San Bernardino killer's phone. What do you make of this story? Um, For a little bit of history, right, there was a a couple of terrorists in San Bernardino, uh, killed a bunch of people, but uh, they had iPhones on them that were locked. The government couldn't unlock them because San Bernardino's county government actually made some changes that prevented the FBI from getting access unintentionally. Uh, but, you know, there was kind of a technical mistake on their part. So they wanted to get in this phone, see who they're talking to, who their contacts are, get an idea. They were involved in a terrorist-related shooting. So, I mean, obviously a very high-profile pro- case. Uh, they actually sued Apple to try to force them to develop something to get them into the iPhones, but they dropped it in lieu of, uh, I don't know if I would call this person a hacker, but a professional who does mobile forensics. But certainly the government you know, has a need to get into these things from time to time. Uh, I don't really mind it. And I don't think many people do in the, in the case of, hey, you know, we've got something legitimately under physical custody. They wanted Apple to create an encryption backdoor, an iPhone backdoor. Uh, the U.S. has kind of stepped back from that. Uh, the U.K. is actually still going forward with that. Coming up next, uh, we're going to talk about security awareness, email security, what we're doing wrong, and how we can encourage people to behave more securely. So stay tuned for that. You're listening to Cybersecurity Today Radio with John Bambanek. This is Cybersecurity Today with John Bambanek. You're back with Bambanek on Cybersecurity. And welcome back. You're listening to Cybersecurity Today Radio. I am your host, John Bamanek. Last segment, we took a lot of your questions. What's your concern about security uh, and how you can protect your own privacy, as we do on every show, but thought... When we take a look at it from the other perspective, right? I talk a lot about security awareness, uh, that businesses need to be doing it. People need to be aware of the threats. But from the business perspective of what you, your employees, your staff, and how better to get them interested in security to protecting your organization. So have a guest here with us who wrote a very interesting column that uh, ran in Computer World, if I recall, that when security awareness matters, or if security awareness matters, it's money that talks how everything we've been doing uh, uh, has not really been really helping to solve the problem. So joining us here is Evan Schumann, uh, wrote the article in Computer World uh, with Security Awareness Money Talks. Welcome to the show, Evan. Oh, thank you so much. So like I said, I certainly took a look at it, and I know it's a problem that I've struggled, struggled with, right, getting people to care, getting people to know what not to do. But, but tell us a little bit, you know, about the thesis of your article, what you're finding and some of the research out there. Well, first of all, I would start because you just mentioned two things that are very, very different. And a lot of company executives tend to merge them. You mentioned about getting people to care and also getting them to know what not to do. And some people think that that's all that matters, that as long as they understand the dangers of, for example, opening an email attachment from someone that you didn't expect to send you an attachment, that that's it. It's like, no, 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 no knowledge and training, because that's what all training is about. Oh, we're going to train them and we're going to get them to understand it. And we're going to take little quizzes at the end. Employees generally understand these dangers. What they don't know is that when it actually hits on them, they're going to prioritize that training over responding to a message from their boss. And you've got a statistical problem that they have figured out, employees have, 
that there's an excellent chance that that attachment from your boss is probably from your boss. And they know that. And they know there's an excellent chance that they will not be causing a problem if they open it. And if they are, they don't think there's a consequence. So businesses mm-hmm. have to change the odds. Well, no, and I, th- I think that's certainly true, right? There's an entire genre of tax business email compromise where it spoofs email from the CEO saying, you know, I need this money wired to this account right now and people being helpful. And a combination of people being helpful and afraid of the CEO gets people to wire money out. And once it's once it's gone, you know, there, there's no clawing it back. So uh, the attackers certainly know this, uh, you know, and, there, and there's certainly uh, a human nature problem to it. So, um, you know, uh, so it's so what do you you know, what do you think the solution is here? Well, the solution, I mean, from my psychotic perspective, is you've got to change up the odds. Companies should internally tell people you cannot open these attachments. And then they should send out attachments without informing employees beforehand and see mm-hmm. who's opening it and deal with it that way. I suggested in the column that you could do it two ways, carrot and stick. You could mm-hmm. put mm-hmm. a small bonus fund. And for the employees who open up no emails, some of them will get this bonus to encourage catching them being good. Or you could deduct salary from people who have opened up these attachments. So now what you've done is you made it much more likely that that email from my boss could be a trick. I didn't expect it. I, I know they're trying to find out if people are doing it. It helps set people honest. It helps it makes mm-hmm. it more likely that they will do what they're supposed to do. Yeah, and I think, you know, that kind of brings me to an interesting story, right? There's a large financial services firm I worked with who did, uh, you know, send out these fake phishing emails and, and kind of one of the interesting things, right, to get to, to do it and, and why I really think there needed to be a manager intervention is like, hey, Facebook is going to open a data center in your town, right? And here's our salary schedule in an Excel document, you know, enable macros, go through all the bad steps, you know, and they found out like 80% of the developers would click on this and said, oh, you know, we've got a security and awareness problem. It's like, no, you, you've got a management problem. 80% of you people went through a bunch of hoops to figure out what somebody else would pay because they're looking for another employer, that, that the economics uh, also plays, plays an effect in the negative side. So I think, you know, positive incentives, you know, are certainly more beneficial, right? And everybody gets, I don't know, a Starbucks gift card or, or picks something, you know, uh, that I think that could, that could have real impact. The real issue is, and that's that's part of the problem, there is a perception among executives, oh my goodness, 80% of our people open that attachment, we need to do more training. It's operating Mm. on a flawed premise. The premise is that those people don't know the risks of doing that. I'll wager Mm. that right now, in in May of 2017, that the vast majority of people who opened it knew all about your training. They just chose to not implement it at that time because they had some greater incentive at that moment. Right. No, and I think that's that's kind of exactly what goes on, and, and these criminals play into that, you know, in a variety of different ways, especially in the corporate world where, like I said, business email compromises almost all this problem, or uh, even presidential campaigns, right? You know, that was, that related into basic social engineering for a lot of it, what came to the election hacking, and for whatever particular reason, you know, the training and, and very obvious things never really kicked in. Uh, but certainly, you know, the federal government and political campaigns being what they are, right, there's no real consequences for not doing it, and it, you know, and basically the incentives are all upside down. So I think you're bang on on that point. The other issue is rethinking how you do training, because training doesn't negate the key point, 
which is there's an excellent chance that I'll be fine if I open up that attachment. Mm -hmm. That's what they come away with the training for, that, oh, yeah, this happens, but it's highly unlikely. I mean, I use the line that uh, the chance of your opening up an attachment from your boss and actually being from your boss is roughly comparable to when you hear a doorbell. Chances are best that it's not a homicidal maniac, except if it's Thanksgiving. Then, you know, odds are even. Mm -hmm. So, you know... So for, you know, your business leader listening to this program, right, hearing this is that, uh, you know, uh, everything we're doing about security awareness is not correct, right? You know, what's, what's the 30-second version of what they need to, you know, implement when they come into the office on Monday? They need to implement policies that you don't up an attachment and to tell employees, we are going to be sending out attachments that you didn't expect. We are telling you, do not open them. There will be consequences, good and bad, for people who do it. So now you've changed the odds. Now you've made it much more likely that they will assume that an email they didn't expect is problematic for them. And that's all you can hope for. All right. That's perfect. That's great advice. So there you are, right? You know, some good tips about security awareness uh, for those of you running your own businesses, managing teams uh, of what you can do to help improve uh, the security behavior of your staff. Uh, it was Evan Schumann. You can read the article in Computer World uh, when it comes to security awareness, Money Talks. Thank you for being on the show, Evan. Uh, my pleasure. So that was some really great information from Evan, right? Uh, everything we know about security awareness, that human nature really gets in the way of people doing uh, the right and secure thing. And maybe you've seen a lot of stuff like that yourself. So I'll give you just kind of an example, you know, of how that short circuits uh, security and human nature uh, here briefly with a personal example. One of the most successful phishing emails, one of these spoofed emails that tries to steal your identity uh, I've ever received and that I almost fell uh, victim for. I get an email purporting to be my cell phone company. Oh, you've got a bill for 1200 some odd dollars. And my first thought is, you know, stinking cell phone companies, right? Because I don't know if any of you are really happy with your cell phone carrier. I have my feelings. But saw that and I just about to click on it. I was like, wait a second, right? You know, that's not how they send emails. So these criminals are really good at deception. They're really good at playing into our biases. So certainly, right, you know, if you're an employer, you've got staff, create incentives to get people to slow down and think. Uh, there's this great program, uh, security awareness program, the Department of Homeland Security uh, and the FBI does. It's called Stop, Think, Connect. Uh, you know, take a second to slow down. But really, the most important thing I want you to take away from this, you know, of, of why I do uh, a lot of the security awareness stuff, why I'm doing this radio show. That email that we rely on every day, you know, for communication to send messages back and forth, it is an insecure and an insecurable platform, right? There's nothing I can sell you. I can make it marginally more safe. I can do things to help protect you a little bit more. But in the end, it is an insecure medium of communication. So the more important something is, the more important it is to either not do it in email or verify things out of band. I think I talked last week about, you know, buying a new house and all the documents that have to go back and forth. Uh, that they want to go over email, very useful for identity th thieves. So always, you know, if you get an email, you know, purporting to be from your boss saying, wire this money out of the country, whatever, pick up the phone and call, send a text message. Take that time uh, to really make sure, you know, w what you're seeing is true. So I've had a really great show, a lot of great content. Hope you took a lot out of it. Uh, if you want to connect with us, ask us your questions. 
feel free to go to our website, cybersecuritytodayradio.com. You can reach us on Twitter, at CybersecRadio, or my personal Twitter account, at Bambanak. And on Facebook, at facebook.com slash cybersecradio. You've been listening to Cybersecurity Today Radio from AM820 News in Tampa, AM1060 News in Orlando. 